Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. It's that time of night again, your opportunity to ask the naked scientists. Welcome, Dr. Dave. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Jolly good. What's all new in the world of science? Well, I've got quite a nice story. It's not so much breaking science. It's quite a nice story. There's a guy called Elon Musk who founded PayPal, the oh, right, where yes. you transfer money around when buying things on eBay and things like <laughs> yes. that. Now, he, he made his fortune. He sold the company to um, eBay about seven or eight years ago. And he had loads of money and he wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So he thought, I know what, I'll try and send things to Mars. He then went and looked at how much that would cost and decided he wouldn't have any money left and the reason why it was so expensive was getting things into orbit was so expensive so he thought i'm going to try and solve this problem i'm going to build myself a space rocket company so he's been trying to build space rockets it's a company called spacex and he's got a range of rockets called the falcon rockets um he's built the falcon one which should um, raise about 600 kilograms up to orbit he's had three previous goes at launching this unfortunately the first one exploded the second one once it got almost into orbit it went it started wobbling all over the place and and it came back down again. And the third one, space rockets have, multi, have got multiple stages, and yeah. the first stage didn't turn off soon enough when they tried to disconnect the second stage. So the two didn't disconnect, so they crashed back down to Earth again. But last Sunday, he actually managed to get one into space. He said that um, rocket science is actually very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but when people say that it's like, like rocket science, they do, it is actually very difficult. It's a lot harder than expected. He's actually got there now. And the reason why I think this is quite important is he's been basically trying to do everything as cheaply as possible because getting to space is ridiculously expensive now. And so he's been basically trying to approach it more like you'd build um, airliners or so right. basically try and mass produce everything. It's still so it's um, reliable, but try and get it as cheap <laughs> as possible. And he's built, built everything in-house. So hopefully with any luck, it'll be like between half a quarter to a tenth of the price that it is now, which makes all sorts of interesting new projects possible. So with any luck, there should be a lot more interesting things in space going on if he can keep it up and keep getting those rockets up there. Dr Dave, would you like to travel on one of his rockets into space? It would be cool to go up to space. It would be cool. Right, OK. Well, let's start off with our first question. Paul has emailed in and uh, he said, uh, Dear Dr Dave, here's a question you might not be able to give a definite answer to. Antimatter, uh, reverse electrical charge on the antiproton, has a negative charge and the uh, persistron has a positive charge. So would anti-hydrogen and anti-oxygen combine to form antimatter H2O, water? Would this anti-water behave in a similar manner to normal water with freezing and boiling points in an antimatter planet situation? I know we could not go anywhere near such a planet, but it just interests me from a theoretical point of view. Phew, Paul. <laughs> Dr. Dave. Yeah, antimatter is some stuff which we seem to find it very rarely in this world. So you get things called a positron, which is like the opposite of an electron. And if a positron and an electron meet, they annihilate one another and just create lots of energy. It releases lots of energy into gamma ray particles, gamma ray photons coming out. If with really high energy collisions, you can make antiprotons. And some people think they've just about managed to make antihydrogen. That's because the problem is you make these things in a great big collision, they come flying out really fast. Mm. And then in order for 
for the antiproton and anti-electron to join together and form a little hydrogen atom, you've got to slow everything down and give them enough time to interact. And as far as I know, I think anti-hydrogen, they haven't been able to make very accurate measurements because it's all happening very quickly. They only last like a hundredth of a second. They're flying all over the place. But as far as I know, it's behaving similarly to a normal hydrogen and the energy levels are similar. Fundamentally, whether if you scaled it up, it would start behaving exactly like hydrogen. And if you make antioxygen, it would react together to form water and so on and so on. Um, I don't think anyone knows. Um, there does seem to be something different between um, matter and antimatter just because there's so much more matter in the universe than there is antimatter. And as far as we know, we should, the Big Bang should have created the same amount of each. So there's something odd going on as to why there's more of one than the other. So possibly there is some difference, but fundamentally we don't know. They are doing some experiments trying to study the difference of them in the LHC. So when they get that working again, maybe they'll find out. But fundamentally, I certainly don't know. I, I'm not sure that anyone knows for sure. But the indications are that they're very similar, if not identical. Ah, thank you very much, Dr. Dave. Right. Well, there is another question here from Paul, who says, uh, Dr. Dave, my son asked me if, I think it's tachyons exist. Is that right, tachyons? Yes, it- tachyon is basically supposed to be a particle which is moving faster than the speed of light various bits of Einstein's theories do seem to say that a particle travelling faster than the speed of light might be allowed if it has certain very strange properties one of the ways of interpreting this is that its mass should be instead of positive or negative should be imaginary this means if you square its mass, it should be equal to minus one. It should be a negative number. So you don't normally, if you multiply any number by itself, if it's positive or negative, it always give you a positive number. There are numbers, there are objects called imaginary numbers, which um, whereby if you square them, they become negative. We don't really know what something with an imaginary mass is. Tachyons, if they did exist, would be very strange. Their energy would get less the faster they go. Hmm. and they possibly travel backwards in time or they would have very little way of knowing that they had been going backwards in time. We've got no evidence for them. Some some forms of theories do say they might exist, but we don't know. Right, OK. Well, he's 16 in December and is always like science. Paul, I hope that has helped you um, answer the question. Dr Dave, thank you very much indeed. Right now, Tony is on the line. Good evening, Tony. Good evening, sir. How are you? I am in fine fettle, as they say. How lovely. What's your question for Dr. Dave? Well, it's a sort of general question. Gravity. What on earth holds the earth going round the the sun? What is the the thing that actually holds it? Anything else like that? Yeah, you can sort of generalise that question to all forces because Uh you can say the same thing between two magnets. There's nothing in between them. It works in a vacuum. Sorry to butt in, but I mean, the magnet is sort of electrical, isn't it? With a magnet, you can create them by using electric fields, but a magnet or electric charge, if you charge up a balloon, Uh the way that force is transferred between one thing to another is actually by by photons, which are the same particles as produced by light which are light. Um, it's the ones which actually move force from one place to another actually don't have any energy themselves, so they just um, go from one place to the other without actually transferring energy, but they do transfer the force. 
Uh-huh. So it's basically particles going from one to the other. Similarly, there are other particles called gluons, which hold atomic nuclei together and glue them together, um, which attract protons and neutrons in atomic nuclei. And um, we've found both gluons and photons. Obviously, we can see photons are wandering around. What we haven't seen is what we think the particles which we think are transferring gravity around the place, which are called gravitons. And so theory is that there are little particles going backwards and forwards all the time when they leave the planet, they pull it in that direction slightly. When they reach the other one, they pull the other one back again. Oh. And so you've got some little particles going in, a full dire- in all directions. It's got to be big, hasn't it? One thing, like the sun and the Earth, a lot smaller. Every bit of matter in the universe is thought to give out these particles, and the bigger it is, the more of them are obviously coming out, so the more things are attracted to it. So, I mean, if you've got two cannonballs in space... They wouldn't pull towards each other. They would pull towards each other. But very light. very, very weakly, yes. I see. A guy called Cavendish did the first experiment on Earth to actually measure the force of gravity between objects on the Earth. He got sort of a big dumbbell um, with two lead weights at one on each end, very, very heavy, and strung it on a very, very thin piece of piano wire. And he brought another lead weight, sort of 30 kilos, slowly towards the first one, and that caused it to move ever so slightly towards it and but there's a tiny movement but you could still measure it yeah great so everything attracts everything else it's just uh-huh. big things will attract things more it's not so much the size as the density it's like the, a black hole it's got a very big it's, it's the amount of mass in it yeah. so if you can have something if you had a big lump of gas it wouldn't weigh very much no. wouldn't, it wouldn't have very much mass so it wouldn't attract things very much but if you've got a big lump of rock then it's got a lot more mass so it will attract things more Thank you very much, Dr. Dave. Thank you. You're welcome, Tony. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, Annie in Peterborough says, um, I'm sure I ought to be able to figure this out for myself, but why is it that the man in the moon goes to bed on his head? Um, She says, by that I mean when the moon comes up at a sensible hour, it is easy enough to see the face as it looks pretty much the right way up. Two dark patches for the eyes, the hint of the nose and mouth. If one looks much later on, the face appears to have turned as it arcs through the sky. Very true, Annie. So by that time the moon actually sets, the face is pretty much on its head. Um, Haven't had much chance to check on it during the summer, of course. Does Dr Dave understand what I mean? And can he tell me why it appears that way? Great question, Annie. It is a good question. Dr Dave. Um, This is sort of something fun, just sort of fundamental geometry really so you can you can do this one if you like if you want to pick up a piece of paper which you can tell which way up it is yes hold it out uh, so imagine that that was the moon rising yep. on, on one side okay then imagine that going up over your head right and then coming down on the other side yeah okay. and if you look at it it's yes. turned upside down aha the thing which actually makes it turn upside down is when you turn round. you've turned round. so if actually that's effectively the, when it turns upside down but it's, if you do it with anything it will turn upside down excellent thank you Thank you to uh, Ali and Peterborough for that question as well. Now, a question here that uh, came in last week from uh, Willie, who says, um, why don't ducks sink? First thing is that basically I'd have thought most of their flotation comes from their feathers. They've got waterproof feathers with lots of air in them. So their volume can be very large without being very dense, so they float. And birds are also lighter for a given size than a ma- mammal would be because they have, especially, they've got all sorts of features designed to make them lighter so it's easier to fly. Things like hollow bones full of air. So you can have the same strength of bone mm. but much lighter, which is why chicken bones are so bad for dogs mm. because they're hollow. So if a dog crunches down on them, it kind of 
it's a tube which crushes down and forms lots of sharp pointy things which mm. will go into their mouths but i think the biggest thing is just their feathers are waterproof and trap lots and lots of air so it's a bit like having um flotation bags underneath them when they fly oh. um, my parents had some geese and one of them was broke its leg so it couldn't clean itself and preen its feathers underneath so it stopped being waterproof mm. and then when my, my, my dad was giving it a sort of exercise and putting it in the pond and it just kept floating lower and lower and lower because the feathers they oh, couldn't bless. preen and put waterproof waterproofing oils which the birds secrete from around their beaks oh bless all right so another question um we had one that came in from cambridge uh, dr dave he says um how can a sailing ship sail into the wind dr dave yeah, this is quite an interesting question. It's not what you'd expect at all, because you would have thought that things get blown down the wind. And now the reason why a sailing ship can sail into the wind is because the sail, modern sails don't just act like bags. They're just, they're just being pushed down by the wind. They actually act more like an aeroplane's wing. So an aeroplane's wing, when it, gets, when it flies through the air, um, air hits it and gets pushed downwards. Air gets bent round the curved wing and pushed downwards, and so if you push something, it pushes back. So if the plane pushes the air downwards, the air pushes the plane upwards, so the plane can fly. Now, if you imagine that wing on its side... This is very like a sail. So if um, you've got the sail sheeted in quite tightly, mm. if the wind hits it, it bends around a corner. So the force is actually at right angles to the sail. So if you're sailing into the wind and the sail is pointing into the wind and, and the force is going to be at right angles to that sail, you'd have thought that the boat would then go at right angles to the wind. But actually, because the boat has a big keel on it, if you try and push something with a big keel 45 degrees to the direction it's pointing in, um, it'll actually go, if you put, push, push a boat with a big keel, it doesn't want to go sideways, so it'll always go forwards, even mm. if you push it slightly forwards. So if this lift from the sail is pushing slightly forwards, then the boat will go straight forwards because of the keel. Basically, the sail produces lift at right angles to the sail. Some of that force is forwards. The keel makes the boat just go straight forwards, so the boat will go forwards even though it's pointing somewhat into the wind. It can't go straight into the wind, but they can get up to sort of, I think, sort of 15, 20 degrees off the wind, modern high-tech boats. Thank you very much, Dr Dave. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. On to the phones now. We've got Jill on the line. Good evening, Jill. Hello, Sue. Hello there. What's your question for Dr. Dave? Um, hello, Dr. Dave. Hello. Um, it's snails. Okay. I'm not quite sure the lifespan of snails, but when I've had snails in my garden, I'll put them in my next door garden, and I'm sure the next year one came back. Now, how do they know how to get back? And, I mean, is, is their lifespan a year or what? I don't know. I'm not actually entirely sure of the lifespan of snails. I think it's probably, if it's not a whole year, then it's a good proportion of a year. I mean, I, I think it's of that sort of a year or possibly two or half a year yeah. would be my feeling. I doubt that they have a very good memory and I doubt they can actually remember the route back. But what they might be able to do is smell juicy things in your garden. 
So if you've got something which is particularly nice and juicy, which the snails like eating, they've got a fairly good sense of smell. Um, most small creatures um, find the smell very, very important. Like marigolds and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the sorts of things which they'll, they'll, they'll find lo- lovely and juicy, they can probably smell that, and then they'll, they'll crawl towards the And climb the over thing. the fence, will they? They'll probably go under it, I would have thought. Well, right. I, mean, I, I don't know if there's, if there's gaps between it. If, if they can go under it, they probably would. Um, going over... A, I, I guess snails can go over a fence. It will go over a fence. You probably see them doing it at night if they do. Otherwise, they'll sort of crawl through any gaps underneath. Thanks very much for your question. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. Um, Sheila from Bedford called in to say that ducks do not secrete a liquid through their beaks, but through a duct at the top of their backs. They use it their beak to spread it. Cheers for that, Sheila. Yeah, thank you very much, Sheila. Right, quite a few on the text now. Um, hello to Yvonne, who says, Great show. Why do I get condensation in my frost-free fridge, and can I prevent it? Okay, um, you're probably going to get condensation on a fridge. It's almost impossible not to get some kind of condensation there some of the time. And the reason is that basically condensation is where if you've got an object which is cold enough that if you cool down the air down to that temperature, then water's going to want... The air can't hold that much water, so it's going to condense and form a liquid on that object. It's basically how um, dew happens at night. Dew doesn't really fall. What happens is that if a piece of ground is outside at night... Mm -hmm. Everything radiates a kind of infrared light, and that, so everything's radiating this light is glowing, but you can't see it. It's a colour which you can't see, and that loses energy. And so anything which is um, exposed to... So there's nothing radiating back down again, warming it up, so um, clouds will keep things warm because they radiate heat back down again. But if you've got a clear sky, it radiates heat away, ground gets cold, and then water will condense on it. Your fridge, especially in the summer, is almost always going to be cold enough for water to get, condense on it. And I think frost-free fridges and freezers, they tend to basically occasionally heat, warm up, that they run backwards occasionally, warm up the cooling elements enough so that the frost either evapor- ideally evaporates or will condense or will melt and then run off, run off so they don't build up lots of frost. Especially if it's warm and moist, I'd be very surprised if you could entirely avoid it, although some of them are designed to avoid it turning to frost and building up. Mm, Thank you very much, Dr Dave. Another one on the text here from Daisy in Colchester. Thank you, Daisy. She says, Dr Dave, what exactly is carbon dating and how does it work? Okay, now there's various different what's called isotopes of carbon. And there's all the different elements, uh, different elements, different kind of chemicals. So you've got hydrogen, helium, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen. Uh, and they've got different chemical properties. That's set by how many protons are on the nucleus of the atom. So these are the positive bits. There are other things in the nuclei of atoms called neutrons. And they don't really affect the chemistry very much. They just change the weight of the um, the mass of the atom. So you can change the number of neutrons without really changing the behaviour of the atom very much chemically. It can affect whether it's radioactive or not, because if you've got too many neutrons, then sometimes they'll decay into um, a proton and shoot out an electron very fast, which is a beta radiation. Or you can get a little helium nucleus that flies off the atom, south for radiation. And so... Basically, there are different kinds of carbon. There's carbon-12, carbon-13, carbon-14. Carbon-14's got a half-life. Half of them will decay in sort of 10,000 years odd, uh, roughly, five or 10,000 years. And so if you know how long that takes and you knew how much carbon-14 was originally, and then you can measure how much there is now, 
then you can work out how old it is because it decays at a very constant rate and so you, you can say how old it is. The difficult bit is knowing how much carbon-14 was it in originally. Carbon-14 is manufactured in the atmosphere um, when cosmic rays, which are little particles from the sun, slam into the atmosphere mm. and they can make some of the carbon, I'm not sure if it's making the carbon directly radioactive or it might even be converting nitrogen into carbon. Then you've got a, a radioactive carbon which then gets absorbed by plants and grows. So basically, as soon as it goes underground, it can't gain any more carbon-14. If you knew how much there was to start with, you can work out how old it is. They've got to do all sorts of clever things to um, adjust the way you are in the world because different parts of the world have different amounts of carbon-14 in them um, and ha- how far in the past you were because the amount which the cosmic rays were producing changes over time. So they've got to do all sorts of calibrations. So what's really useful is if they get tree rings because um, if you can count back the tree rings, you know exactly how old the piece of wood is, and then you mm. can measure the amount of carbon-14 that's in it now, and so you can work out how much there used to be, so then you can calibrate all your systems. If things are a few hundred years old, it's sort of within 10 years. A few thousand years old, it gets less accurate. But you can do similar things with other elements, possibly thorium, things like that, which will give you dates further back in time. Or again, less accurate, so you can sort of vaguely measure how old um, dinosaur bones are and things like that. Wow, thank goodness for trees. Now, Dr Dave, what is the current thinking on cold fission? Fusion. Fusion. Oh, right. He's, right okay, fusion. Um, is it possible from CJ? Nuclear fusion, you have a nuclear, normal nuclear power stations work by fission. They take big atoms and hit them with a, a nucleus. Atoms are very positively charged. They're just being held together by the strong force, which I was talking about earlier. But if you can split a big atom in half, the two halves of it will fly outwards with, um, because they're, they're both positively charged. They repel each other, fly outwards and release a large amount of energy. Now, the problem with that is the things which get released tend to be very radioactive and it makes the nuclear reactor radioactive and you get lots of nuclear waste and if you're looking thousands of years in the future there's a limited amount of um, uranium and other heavy elements which will you can fission easily but the thing which powers stars is a different process called nuclear fusion which is gluing basically smashing together very very small atoms like hydrogen and fusing them together to create things slightly heavier atoms like helium, which also releases a large amount of energy. This is very difficult because you've got to get the atoms close enough together to react and basically you've got to heat things up very, very hot. Mm. Um, you can do it in hydrogen bombs. And they've just about get, got it to work in some very high-temperature reactors, like 200 million degrees centigrade in things. They're, built, they're building a new one fairly soon in France called ITER, which they can just about get to work by basically heating up hydrogen gas to 200 million degrees centigrade and waiting for them just to fuse naturally. Some people thought they'd managed to do something very clever in some palladium catalyst which was making um, nuclear fusion happen just in a test tube, basically. Anyone actually looked at what they were doing, their scientific method was really bad, and no one's managed to repeat the results. And as far as I know, no one's, I think, would have heard about it if someone had actually got decent results. So it's very unlikely it would work actually happening cold. No, and there's been no uh, no explosion or anything yet. <laughs> Hello to Brian in Daventry. You've texted in. Um, hi, Sue. Hi, Dr. Dave. When a venomous snake poisons its prey, then eats it, why does it not poison itself? The main reason is venomous snakes, most of the poisons are either... Basically, they started off as stomach 
enzymes which are used to break down food in the snake's stomachs. And so a lot of the primitive snakes use some of those enzymes um, and uh, stomach juices and then injected them into their prey. And so they came from their stomach, so if they ate them, that's no problem at all. Over millions of years have evolved more nasty things and more vicious poisons, but pretty much all these poisons are what are called proteins. And basically when you eat protein, you break it down into its building blocks, and then um, it's perfectly harmless. So basically the snake's stomach will take apart all of the poisons and rip them apart and then absorb them as individual building blocks like any other protein. And they're not bad for them at all. I think snakes also have tended to evolve some kind of immunity to their own venom. But I think if you took a lot of snakes and injected large amounts of the venom into their bloodstream, then it would probably do them no good at all. Lots of things which you can eat, you can't have injected into your bloodstream. You can eat iron and that's quite good for you. But if you got injected with iron, it'd be very bad for you. Lots of other things like that. So yeah, um, snake venom is really bad in your bloodstream, but not so bad if you eat them. Right, it's time to go to the phones once again. This time, Paul is on the line. Good evening, Paul. Good evening. Okay, you're through to Dr. Dave. What's your question? Dr. Dave, I was working on a friend's car, and he's got a a special magnet round the fuel line that alleges to straighten the molecules in the fuel and increase fuel economy. How does that work, and is it at all possible? And if this is the case, why aren't the car manufacturers and stuff doing it to improve the fuel economy of the cars. Well, I've heard of these before. As far as I know, there's lots of them being sold, lots of people making quite a lot of money out of them, but there's no actual real evidence that they work at all. I definitely can't see how that they could possibly physically work because fuel um, is a very non-magnetic material. It even, doesn't even conduct electricity, so you can even have some strange side effect of it. And so a magnetic field isn't going to have a lot of effect on it. It's certainly not going to align the molecules, like some of them say, um, because molecules are vibrating around all over the place. Even if you did align them there, then they're not going to still be aligned by the time they get into your engine. And so magnetic fields I'm very suspicious of, um, and I think if they did work, then the manufacturers would have put them in by now because it's a very cheap way of improving fuel economy. Something I read recently which does apparently improve the fuel economy is instead of using a magnetic fields, um, using very high electric fields inside the fuel line. And basically if you apply sort of several thousand volts between two connections inside the fuel line quite close in diesel engines, then they think probably the, some of the fuel is still charged when it gets into the nozzles and gets squirted into the engine. And so if you've got a load of negatively charged fuel, it tends to split up more. And definitely with older engines, it forms a finer mist, and that causes more efficient burning and less fuel is left over. It doesn't entirely burn and ends up as carbon, black soot coming out of the back of the engine. And so high electric fields do seem to have some effect, but I've definitely never seen anything with the magnetic ones, that uh, any evidence that the magnetic ones work. OK, that's great. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Gus has sent an email in. Hi, Sue. Hi, Dr. Dave. We hear a lot about nuclear power these days, but how exactly have the power plants improved compared to the days of Sizewell and Chernobyl? I think when he says Sizewell, he probably means wind scale. Um, Sizewell is the nuclear power... Is is the most recent... Well, there's two of them, but the most recent nuclear power station is in Sizewell in um, Suffolk, I think. And I don't think they've had any problems at all. They've been just gently plumbing bimbling along making um, energy for us. Wind scale was a very, very old nuclear power station. Basically, again, nuclear power, um, you're taking large um, 
nuclei and you needed to fire um, neutrons at them. And when these nuclei split in half, the uranium nuclei split in half, then they give out more neutrons. But the neutrons that come out are going too fast to split other ones. So you need to slow down the, the neutrons. And in wind scale, they were using graphite to do that. And this slows down the neutrons, so when it hits another uranium atom, then that will split, and then you get a chain reaction that keeps on going and going and producing lots of energy and heating up. In wind scale, they were using graphite, which I think caught fire. And I think they were using graphite as well as a moderator in Chernobyl. So one thing that a lot of modern nuclear reactors use as a moderator, instead of graphite, which can catch fire, they use water, which intrinsically can't. They try and make um, nuclear reactors so that the hotter they get, the less power they'll produce. So if the nuclear reactor gets hot with pressurised water reactors, like the new one, newest one in Sizewell, as it, the reactor gets hot, and if some water boils away, then there's nothing to slow down the neutrons, so it can't produce power in that place. So if, if all the water boils away, the nuclear reactor just shuts down automatically without anyone having to do anything. So basically they're trying to build in fail-safe, so if anything goes wrong, the nuclear reactor turns off. There are other ways whereby the nuclear reactor, if it gets hot, it expands slightly, and then that means that more neutrons are lost and it cools down again. So basically, it's by very carefully designing things, so if anything goes wrong ever, um, the reactor turns off when it's safe. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.